This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. It has come down to this. After 27 years, this is the very last episode of Only a Game. And today we're bringing back stories requested by us. You may know that our first guest is a pretty funny guy. And now the game where we ask accomplished people to accomplish something they won't think of as an accomplishment. But you may not know that Peter Sagel, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, is also a very serious runner. I don't think anybody's ever looked at me and said, whoa, that guy's a long-distance runner. They might say that guy probably moonlights as a fire plug. But to get to this point in his running career, Sagal has gone through some dark moments. With a story that first aired in April of last year, here's Only a Game's Martin Kessler. Before we talk about the period in his life when he says he'd sometimes sneak off to the bathroom in the middle of the day to stare at his protruding ribs and hips when he ran obsessively, when he lost so much weight that his mother took him to the doctor, Peter Sagal wants to make one thing clear. You need to say this before you have any conversation about men and body image, which is that women have it a thousand times worse. Women have been subjected to ridiculous standards of beauty that have changed much to sure to their frustration over centuries. Uh, for men, it's more recent. Peter Sagal started disliking his own body when he was young. For whatever reason, when you're an adolescent, you start comparing yourself unfavorably to the rest of the world. You start feeling your own insecurities quite vividly. I've, I've never met... I, I wouldn't trust anybody who was totally happy with himself as a teenager. Um, <laughs> I kind of had it bad, and, and there were a lot of things I didn't like about myself, and one of them was that I was a pudgy little kid who was terribly out of shape. Sagal was born in 1965 and grew up in suburban New Jersey. His father got caught up in the running boom of the 1970s. He'd wake up early to run before work. I would laugh at him. I would make fun of him. I would say, ah, you went and ran four miles, and where'd you get? Now you're just back here. I've been sitting here eating pancakes, and I think I had the better time. Don't you? I was a snarky. I, I was destined for my job even as a young boy, I think. But as Sagal entered adolescence and began disliking his body, he started going to his father's bookshelf and pulling down a particular book. It was Jim Fix's The Complete Book of Running. The cover of the book has uh, perhaps the platonic ideal of a runner's legs in mid-stride. That runner was author Jim Fix. Uh, One leg uh, flexing off the ground, the other sort of coming up next to it, behind it, striding forward. And the legs are perfect, thin, lean, muscular. In fact, so muscular you can actually pick out almost the tendons and the striations and the muscle. And I remember very vividly taking down that book and looking at that cover, looking at those legs and, you know, looking at my legs, which were sort of were and still are kind of thick and pudgy and you couldn't see, you know, a muscle to be found. Sagal says he would flip through the book, taking in the pen and ink drawings of very happy-looking people. And when he was 15, Sagal says he made a decision. He realized he couldn't do anything about his acne or his social awkwardness. But maybe one thing I could do was actually do something about my, my lack of shape, my lack of fitness, the fact that I was pudgy. So I asked my father if I could go running with him. And much to his credit, given the mockery that I, uh, you know, subjected him to in the prior years, he said yes and invited me to, no, he didn't invite me. He woke me up the next morning and took me out for a run. And, and I remember and I put on my Keds. I remember they were Keds because that's the brand we all had back in the 70s. I have this vague memory of them being orange, but I can't assure you that's true. And what imprints on memory is trauma. So I really <laughs> vividly remember 
trying to follow my father out our suburban street and then up a mild hill and really just dying. My lungs were on fire. My head was swimming. We got about a half mile. I said, I'm done. I can't do it. And he said, all right. You turn around and go home. And I turned around and I went home very slowly. And it was miserable. But the next morning, Peter Sagal put back on his orange shoes. I guess it just bespeaks my level of dissatisfaction with myself that I was willing to get up and endure it again. And of course, because this is, you know, an aspect of running that I think is always true, but especially when you're 15, I improved quite rapidly. Sagal says that within a couple months, he was literally running circles around his father. He got obsessive about running. Sagal started racking up six or seven miles every single day, and he severely restricted his diet. I would literally go to the library and read cookbooks because I was so hungry. I needed to do something about food, so I would read about it. I remember watching TV and waiting for food commercials to come on so I could look at the bowl of soup or the can of Dinty Moore beef stew or whatever it was because that's how hungry I was. It, it sort of dominated my, my waking life. And how much weight did you end up losing? I lost about 40 pounds. Sagal's mother became worried. She took him to the doctor. He was like, yeah, he's getting a little skinny. It's okay. You're running a lot. It seems healthy. No problem. You know, he didn't ask me, like, how much are you eating every day? And he didn't ask me, like, maybe the most important question he could have asked me was, like, do you consider yourself skinny? What would you have said if your doctor had asked, do you think you're skinny? I think I would have told him that I still thought of myself as fat. Or, or might, maybe I said, I might have said something to the effect of, oh, well, if I ate more, then I'd get fat again, or something like that. Although I was never diagnosed, uh, I think I was uh, anorexic. The attitude was, no, he's not in trouble. Oh, he's getting in shape. Oh, he's becoming athletic. How wonderful. And uh, it doesn't mean I was, you know, suffering any less. I certainly wasn't very happy at the time. Sagal says he began eating more his senior year of high school. It helped that he started dating someone and eating meals with her. And when he got to college, he was too busy and distracted to obsess about food. His running became sporadic. The weight eventually came back. Years passed. Sagal became a dad, and he started hosting a public radio show that you may be here when you forget to change the dial after tuning into only a game. Basically, I just became less active and more sedentary. And one day I went to the doctor's office for some sort of checkup, and he weighed me, and he was like, all right, 200 pounds, okay, 200 pounds, I'm 5'7". That's not good. Uh, and I really freaked out. I mm -hmm. was like, it was almost as if all of that self-loathing from my high school years came back and like, oh my God, you've become the thing that you most feared. Sagal started running again. This time, he didn't restrict his diet in a dangerous way, but he wanted to reach a healthier weight. And then as I reached 40 in 2005, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to turn 40. I, I guess I should, you know, run a marathon. That's a good thing to do when you turn 40 and you're afraid of dying. So Sagal started training for the Chicago Marathon. What did your weight, weight colleagues make of the fact that you embarked on this first marathon? I think they probably endured it. <laughs> they endured it as sort of a midlife crisis, you know, just sort of this weird thing that I was going and doing. I think the main problem they endured was because I was getting up so early to go running every day, 
I would sometimes get very sleepy in the middle of the <laughs> afternoon. And that became a problem. I'd have to be like, Peter, are you all right? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But other than that, I mean, they've put up with a lot of grief for me over the years. I think this was one of the easiest things I had to put up with. Sagal says he had no idea how to train for a marathon. He overdid it, eventually injuring himself. He had to miss a month of training. But on race day, Sagal lined up. And it was miserable. <laughs> I had the worst time because, of course, I hadn't adequately trained. And, um, and I remember very vividly, there, there's sort of a dead spot in mile 19 through 21 of the Chicago Marathon because you're running along in a rather desolate area, running alongside the, the freeway, heading down south toward uh, Comiskey Park. And it's a very lonely place. And I remember just feeling so miserable. <laughs> And really wanting to quit, but I said to myself, I've run, you know, 19, 20 miles of a marathon. If I ever want to finish a marathon, I'll have to go back and run 20 miles again just to get to this point, so I might as well finish. Sagal did. And when he crossed the finish line after four hours and three minutes, a thought crossed his mind. Much to my amazement, instead of saying to myself, wow, that was great, now I guess I'll go hike in Nepal or something, <laughs> I said, I wonder if I can do that faster. Peter Sagal considers this to be a turning point. His motivation changed. Instead of running to exercise or to lose weight, he started running to improve his time. All of a sudden, you're doing something that is a positive goal rather than a negative goal. Instead of abasing and erasing yourself, you're improving yourself. A year later, Sagal ran his second marathon. He cut 40 minutes off his time and qualified for Boston. Doing it wrong is when you're trying to achieve a standard that's external to you. You're trying to be the skinny, fit cover model that you will never be, and you will make yourself insane if you attempt to do it. The healthy way to do it is to start from a position of how can I be the best version of myself that I can be. I want to talk about your love handles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought them with me, so... Good, good. Uh, the, the men of my family were born with love handles. And, uh, and I know this from looking at my father and looking at my brothers. Uh, we will always have them. So you've accepted that I've, these wh- will What be other there. choice do I have? I've accepted that I have love handles and that I don't have hair. There's nothing I can do about either. But while Sagal has worked on accepting his own body, he sees ways in which society is sending more of the wrong messages to men. I was watching, because this is one of my enthusiasms, Game of Thrones, and, and I was watching a scene with uh, Theon Greyjoy. I'm a Greyjoy. I can't fight for Rob and my father both. Who's a sniveling character. He is by no means an admirable guy. And yet when he takes off his shirt, he could have been a professional bodybuilder 30 years ago. Because that's just the standard now. Sagal says back in the 70s, kids' Spider-Man costumes were just plastic smocks with a picture of Spider-Man's torso. Now they come with faux muscles. It's weird to have an eight- or nine-year-old boy walking around with these fake Arnold Schwarzenegger physique. But there's this insane inflation on, you know, male body image that we're all sort of rolling with, even as we speak. So maybe it's not so surprising that Sagal says men are more likely to talk to him about depression and marital problems, other things he's been open about, than about their bodies. I think it would be a lot easier for guys who have these issues to know that they're, like in a lot of things, they're not entirely alone. Sagal is doing his part. He's released his own book about running. And in a nod to Jim Fix's The Complete Book of Running, the book he used to pull off his father's shelf, Sagal titled it, the incomplete book of running. 
and he put his own legs on the cover. Because they're not Jim Fix's legs. They never will be. They never could be. But that's the whole point. I mean, in a weird way, you can sort of describe my whole sort of mental and athletic journey from one point to another of wanting to have legs like those to writing my own book, putting my own legs in the cover and saying, yeah, they're my legs and they're good enough to be in the cover of a book, my book. And that's the whole, I think, difference between trying to be something else and trying to be the best practical version of yourself. That story came from Only a Game's Martin Kessler. It first aired in April of 2019. Back in 2003, the OAG staff imagined what it would be like if the Red Sox and the Cubs, both still stuck in World Series droughts, played each other for the championship. That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. We're bringing back some staff favorites on this, the last episode of Only a Game. Up next, Gary Wallach's story about a trailblazing black golfer you might not have heard about before. My dad used golfing as a life lesson that you have to earn your way, that life is hard, that you have to work at it. Michael Holmes says that his father, Alfred Holmes, nicknamed Tup, saw golf as more than golf. Michael and his brothers caddied for their dad as soon as they were strong enough to lift a golf bag. It was tough because my dad was a tough guy. He had these rules. You had to carry the bags. You weren't allowed to ride in the cart. You had to put rubber bands on your pants so that your pants would not flop in the wind and that you don't speak. As a black golfer in the 30s and 40s, Tup had to contend with rules that were tougher than the ones he imposed on his kids. He learned that excellence on the fairway was no guarantee that he could play where he wanted to in his native Atlanta. He played at the Lincoln Country Club. That's Tup's grandson, Hamilton Holmes Jr. But that was only a nine-hole golf course, and it wasn't the greatest golf course from what I understand either. That was Tup's understanding too. None of Lincoln's nine holes were longer than 300 yards. The greens were small, and the course was poorly maintained. Tup wanted to play elsewhere. But there was a problem. Back then, the city ordinance here in Atlanta stated that black golfers, or just black people in general, I should say, were not allowed to use public facilities, um, primarily parks or recreational type areas. Tup Holmes would take aim at that ordinance, and it would be the fight of his life. Tup Holmes was born in 1917. He learned basic golf skills from area caddies and from his father, Hamilton Mayo Holmes, one of Atlanta's first African-American doctors. Tup earned a spot on Tuskegee Institute's varsity golf team and won three consecutive Negro intercollegiate championships from 1937 to 1939. He qualified to play in the 1939 NCAA golf tournament, but was turned away because of the color of his skin. He graduated and moved to Detroit, where he sometimes golfed with boxing great Joe Lewis. His son, Michael, says Tup thrived as an amateur. 
and he subsequently became the state of Michigan amateur champion and also the state of Ohio amateur champion. And he won several amateur Negro championships, as they called it back then. That's Tup's grandson, Hamilton. Tup returned to Georgia with his young family in 1948. Michael Holmes marvels at how he did it all. He had many irons and many fires all at the same time. He owned service stations. He owned an insurance agency. He owned some restaurants, a couple of funeral homes. He was a guy that was always thinking forward. And Tup still wanted to play golf. In the early 1950s, only three of Atlanta's more than 130 public parks, which included five golf courses, were accessible to all. By 1951, Tup had had enough. He felt that black citizens should have a chance to play on public courses. Their public tax dollars were being used to help support the public courses. So why shouldn't they have a chance to play on the same courses just like everyone else? So on July 19, 1951, more than four years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, Tup Holmes committed an act of civil disobedience on an Atlanta golf course. Rounding out the foursome were Tup's father, his brother Reverend Oliver Wendell Holmes, and family friend Charles Bell. Tup chose the course named for golfing legend Bobby Jones. They were turned away by the local pro there. They didn't cause a problem. They just turned around and left at that point. But they were determined to try to play on the public courses. Bobby Jones was a wealthy white Atlantan, famous for regarding golf as the gentleman's game. It wasn't very gentlemanly to bar black golfers from playing on that course. It would have been funny if not for the sheer unfairness of it and the danger Back at home, five-year-old Michael Holmes and his brothers knew something was up. We began to get very disturbing telephone calls and threats that they would kill us if they uh, found us out on the golf courses, if we did not give up on the effort to utilize the golf courses and the parks. A general sense that, hey, get in your place. Tupp's response to the threats was to organize what he called the Atlanta Golf Committee. He hired attorneys. Letters were sent to the city threatening a lawsuit if African Americans continued to be denied access to municipal courses. William Hartsville was the mayor and the city just didn't respond. The city did not consider the request. That's Atlanta City Council President Caesar Mitchell. He's currently campaigning for mayor of Atlanta. It's just a little ironic that Mayor Hartsfield and city government would deny something so basic. The irony Mitchell refers to, perhaps, is that Hartsfield is remembered by some for fostering Atlanta's image as the city too busy to hate and for winning an election over staunch segregationist Lester Maddox. Again, Hamilton Holmes. Mayor Hartsfield even tried to initiate having the public courses sold to private individuals so that they could be turned into private courses. Hartsfield also appropriated $75,000 to build a public course for black golfers. The city shot down that plan, arguing that, quote, Negroes did not play enough to warrant building a separate golf course. After two years of frustration, Tup Holmes, along with his brother and father, filed a petition in U.S. District Court requesting an injunction preventing Atlanta from discrimination at its public courses. 
It was filed in 1953, and then in 54, the court said that the city of Atlanta would be able to keep separate but equal courses or be able to have certain days where African-Americans could go and play golf on the public courses. But opposition to the idea that separate could be equal was growing everywhere, including Atlanta. The NAACP offered its resources, and future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall joined the Holmes legal team as lead attorney. But a series of appeals failed to provide the remedies Holmes was looking for. So they decided to continue to pursue their court case, and it eventually went to the Supreme Court of the United States. On November 7, 1955, the Supreme Court sent the case back to district court with strongly worded instructions to end segregation. Again, Caesar Mitchell. It was not only great for Atlantans, it was great for Georgians, because I think it really made the point that separate but equal was not sufficient and was not the future. On December 24, 1955, Tup Holmes exercised his hard-won right carefully. My dad wanted to make sure that my mom and my granddad were protected. There was this kind of underlying notion that they were going to meet violence. And so to avoid a violent conflict, my dad, uncle, and Charles Bell decided to go to North Fulton to avoid the possibility that there would be people waiting on them at Bobby Jones to inflict harm. And I think that they were smart to do that. And right after that, some other African-American golfers came out on Christmas Day and then days after and continued to play golf on the city courses. According to Michael, the Holmes versus Atlanta Supreme Court case not only opened up hundreds of Atlanta parks, it served as precedent in dozens of other desegregation cases. Some consider it to be as important as the landmark Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case of 1954. Tup Holmes died of cancer in 1967. He was only 50 years old. Tup's accomplishments on the course and in the courts went largely unnoticed for years. But on August 20, 1983, Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young rededicated Adams Park Golf Course and renamed it the Alfred Tup Holmes Memorial Golf Course. His son Michael was there. All of my brothers and sisters and my mother were alive at that point in time, and we were at the golf course on that day that it was dedicated. I cried, you know, because someone had finally recognized the impact that my family had had on the city of Atlanta and on generations of African Americans. Hamilton Holmes Jr. and Atlanta City Council President Caesar Mitchell play the Tup Holmes course from time to time. Michael Holmes doesn't golf, but he still visits. All agree that the upkeep there needs improvement. But they also agree that a challenging public golf course welcoming everybody is a fitting tribute to Tup Holmes and a reminder to younger generations. On November 7th, 2015, the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court's reversal, a dedication ceremony was held at the Bobby Jones Golf Course for an exhibit honoring Tup Holmes. In attendance was the great-granddaughter of Charles Bell, one of the golfers who tried to play there in 1951, but was turned away. And she asked, who was that man that they were talking about? And why were they talking about that man? She was maybe three, four years old. And her dad said something that stuck with me. He said that 
he was talking about you. That story came from Only a Game's Gary Wallach. It first aired in July of 2017. The piece longtime host Bill Littlefield has most often mentioned as the one he'd like to hear again is a story that he believed we never could air again. And that's because so much has changed since 2003, when both the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs were just one win away from the World Series. But hey, this is our last show, and there are no rules. So go ahead, transport your mind back to 2003, and imagine with us what it would have been like if the Red Sox and the Cubs had met in that World Series. For any baseball fan with an imagination, the best of all playoff outcomes would have been a Cubs-Red Sox World Series. The Red Sox haven't won the championship since 1918. The Cubs have gone without series rings since 1908. Back in October, before the two teams were eliminated from the playoffs in the heartbreaking fashion to which their fans have grown accustomed, we wondered what would have happened had they met in this year's fall classic. And we produced this chilling scenario. Game seven, bottom of the ninth. The Cubs are up one to nothing. The Red Sox have the bases loaded with two outs and a 3-2 count on Nomar Garciaparra. Joe Browski pitching from the stretch and... Browski can't stay upright on the mound. That's got to be a ball. This wind, this sudden, I don't know what to call it. A hurricane, a tornado, a typhoon. Oh, swept Browski off the mound. Ball. He's tumbling head over heels across the field, and he disappears into the dugout. That had to hurt. I don't think he's coming back out. No, indeed. The bullpen gate is open, and I think we're going to see... A swarm of locusts. That's the pitcher is Todd Wellmeyer, who's only had one save all season. This is a surprise. They're in my hair. Wellmeyer's trying to get to the mound, and... Round is open up. It's swallowed Wellmeyer. Looks like Dusty Baker has to make another call to the bullpen. So let's go down to Chet Marks with a lucky fan watching the game from the bleachers. Chet, I have here, uh, sorry, what's your name? Death. So, uh, Mr. Death, are you a Sox fan or a Cubs fan? I'll take them both. <laughs> and I see you're here with some friends. What are their names? This is Pestilence, Famine, and War. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Hiya. All right, then. You boys enjoy the game. This is Chet Marks pitching it back upstairs. Nomar looks determined. A World Series ring is really all his resume lacks. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. What's that glow in the distance? Please try to leave the park in orderly fashion. Nomar is fiddling with his batting gloves like an octopus with a rash. Good God, that's annoying. Up beyond the scoreboard, that, that glow in the east coming this way. It's red and orange and, and, and angry. angry. It's hail and the fire. It's fire! Beware, Gate there be dragons there. Dixie, blocked by three-headed dog. Try the charred gap, right field wall. Thank you for coming to Fenway Park. Red Sox remind you to drive home safely. Of course, the Florida Marlins and the New York Yankees prevented the opening of the ninth gate. However, both the Red Sox and the Cubs should be contenders once again next year. Will there be another opportunity for rivers of blood to flow in the streets and for prophecy to be written in flames across the sky? Probably not. (laughs) 
Of course, both the Red Sox and the Cubs have now broken their World Series droughts, but they weren't facing each other when it happened, which might be why only a game's 2003 prophecy never came to pass. As the host of Only a Game for 25 years, Bill Littlefield was known for many things. His laugh, his support of women's sports, and his doggerel poetry. I am no poet, so we asked Bill to come back and provide us with one more verse about today's sports landscape. The outlook isn't brilliant for the major leagues today. Who knows which clubs can field 10 healthy fellows who can play? The rosters are depleted by the plague, which is a shame, but baseball stumbles on as if to say, hey, it's the same as if there were no virus, and although you can't come see us, we know that in your dreams you would sincerely like to be us. The NBA is bubbled up, and I suppose that's fine, but how long will it be until the players start to whine, contending that life in the bubble's brutish, empty, boring? And some may hear their teammates as they're quietly imploring the guys to lose tonight and then tomorrow night as well. Eliminated, we will leave the bubble. We won't tell that we have missed some foul shots that we know we could have made so we could go back home where we would certainly have stayed if we had had the choice. Of course, we didn't, so we're here. But we can lose and burst the silly bubble, never fear, because although the idea might have seemed completely grand... I gotta tell you, brother, I am sick of Disneyland. And meanwhile, to the north, the NHL has limbered up. It's staging what might look a little like the Stanley Cup. Although the season's truncated and no one's there to cheer, on TV they're still selling life insurance, drugs, and beer. And that's the bottom line, I guess, for each and every game. A plague is just a plague, but business goes on all the same. Though I suppose of college football, that cannot be said. I'll shed no tears on that account, and if the game were dead, I'd not be much lamenting it or sighing long and deep. But that's beside the point. I think that it is just asleep. The game's proponents liken it to young men off to war. I turn the sound off when they say it. I can take no more. But happily, I'll open up my yap, and I will say it's fine that no one's turning to the NCAA for solace or direction or a plan to carry on. Few hearts would shatter if the NCAA were gone. I hope you won't conclude from this that I am out of sorts, and I am not complaining. I no longer write of sports. The times provide, as I have found, and so there is no dearth of more significant concerns here and around the earth. That's Bill Littlefield. He was the host of Only a Game for its first 25 years. Now he writes novels no one has published yet. In 1949, a young basketball executive named Leo Ferris orchestrated the merger that would create the NBA. So why isn't Leo in the hall? That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Around, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. 
Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by the New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine. And we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. Back in 2017, I received an email from a man named Christian Figueroa. He told me that his great uncle, Leo Ferris, was the co-creator of basketball's shot clock. But for reasons Christian didn't understand, his uncle never got the credit. Some say the shot clock saved the NBA, and that's not actually a stretch. But as I dug more into the story, I realized that Leo Ferris was important for more than just saving the NBA. He helped create it. Danny Biazone was 83 years old on the day in 1992 when Sean Kirst, then a columnist for the Syracuse Post Standard, came to visit him. Danny was this tiny, indomitable force. When I met him, he was two weeks before death. He was in his bowling alley, which had remained unchanged since the days when he owned the Nats. Biazone owned the Syracuse Nationals from 1946 to 1963, and he owned that bowling alley back then, too. The story Kirst had heard, the story everyone had heard, was that after a game one night, Danny Biazone scribbled calculations on the back of a napkin at the bar of his bowling alley and invented the 24-second clock. Kirst says Biazone never talked about the clock. He always called it the time. He said that, that the game had become tedious and no one wanted to watch it because if one team got up by 10 points, they'd just stall the ball for the rest of the game. Danny said something had to change. You had to have a change in the time. So he never said, I came up with this idea. Biazone didn't have to say he came up with the idea. Legendary Celtics executive Red Auerbach said it for him. Danny Biazone invented the 24-second clock by himself alone, Kirst quoted Auerbach as saying. I was at the meeting when he introduced it. He should get all the credit in the world for it. So I wrote about that, and I get a call out of the blue from a woman who, who is very upset, who says to me, uh, you know, my husband was, was instrumental in, in creating the clock, and, and no one remembers him and no one believes it. And she was so upset I wondered if it was for real. Some of my colleagues said that she had called before, and, and people sort of, uh, to put this harshly, people kind of wrote her off as a crackpot. Ever since he was a kid, Kirst had studied early basketball history, so the woman's claims got his attention. I said, okay, uh, Mrs. Ferris, I, I'll come out and talk to you. So I, I go out to this house in North Syracuse where this really gracious, wonderful person greets me tells me that her husband is uh, dying of Huntington's and, and can't speak for himself. Leo Ferris had a fatal genetic disorder. Some have said it's like dying of Alzheimer's, ALS, and Parkinson's all at the same time. She brings out a paper bag and says, here's the clippings, and it's a paper grocery bag. And I start going through it, and in maybe a quarter of the way through, I pull out a newspaper that shows Leo Ferris with Ned Irish and these other giants of basketball in 1949 at the instant at which the NBA was created. It blew my doors off. It was like, holy smokes. And, and I had no clue. I apologized. I apologized on behalf of myself and I apologized on behalf of all of the basketball hierarchy that had forgotten her husband and had disregarded her. I said, you, you know, you're right and we're going to do something about this. 
And, and this thing really became more than just journalism to me. It became a quest for justice, historic justice for this remarkable family that had been totally overlooked unfairly. Around the same time, nearly 2,000 miles away, Christian Figueroa was growing up in Puerto Rico. Like many of his friends, he loved playing and watching basketball. One day, before he was 10 years old. I was watching a basketball game, um, TV. It was definitely involving Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And my mother turned the corner and she started to watch the, the game with me. And she said, oh, do you know my Uncle Leo invented the shot clock? I was like, what? Really? You never told me that. Figueroa knew that his mother had been raised in upstate New York, but this was the first time she had mentioned her uncle Leo, who was, of course, Leo Ferris. From then on, whenever she would catch her son watching an NBA game on TV, she'd share another story of her uncle and his connections with the league. And, you know, I'd go to school and I'd say, hey, well, my great-uncle invented the 24-second shot clock. And they'd turn around, my friends would say, yeah, well, my grandmother invented the three-point line. And they just wouldn't believe me. And so I remember at an early age being frustrated by my lack of proof. During the summers, Figueroa visited his mother's family in upstate New York. And that's where he met his Aunt Beverly, Leo's wife. She'd come to family reunions and bring an envelope filled with old photos and newspaper clippings. Figueroa hung on her every word. It must have been a relief for Beverly Ferris to find such a receptive audience. Leah was growing weaker by the day. Along with her daughter Jamie, Beverly provided all of Leo's care at home. And she still hadn't found anyone other than journalist Sean Kirst, who believed her. She fought many years, even when he was still alive, even when her daughter was getting sick. She fought and fought to get the truth out. I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been for her. Decades later, Christian Figueroa would pick up where his great-aunt left off. Meanwhile, Sean Kirst was digging into the stories Beverly Ferris had told him, finding corroboration the best way he knew how. Sitting with a lever at a microfilm machine in the back room of a library and reading clips and just going day by day and reading the things because in the old days they reported everything. Kirst says if not for Leo Ferris, the NBA as we know it might never have been formed. Back in the 1940s, there were two rival pro basketball leagues. The NBL, founded in 1937, played in mostly smaller cities. And the BAA, which came along to challenge the NBL in 1946. Ferris was the co-founder and GM of an NBL team, the Buffalo, later Tri-State Bisons. Ferris and the other NBL executives knew their league couldn't survive if it had to compete with the BAA, so... So they make him president of the NBL with the mission to be force a merger with the BAA. Leo Ferris did what smart league presidents do. He outbid the BAA for the best players coming out of college. But then he came up with a crazy idea. Why settle for signing one college player at a time when he could sign a whole college team? Kentucky had a team that, that they called the Fabulous Five, and, and he creates a franchise for them. He says, if you guys come to our league, you can have the Indianapolis franchise. It'll be your team. That is the move that broke the uh, BAA's back. They say, okay, that's enough. 
That old black and white photo Beverly Ferris showed Sean Kirst on that afternoon back in 1992 was taken on August 3rd, 1949, the day the two leagues merged to form the NBA. Five men stand smiling, their hands stacked on top of each other. Ferris is in the middle. His left hand rests on the top of the pile. So you can argue that if a meteor had fell on Leo at that moment, he should be in basketball's Hall of Fame. But he doesn't stop there. That's what's so cool. Sean Kirst had gotten at least one thing absolutely right in his story about Syracuse Nats owner-slash-bowling alley operator Danny Biazone. Danny said something had to change. You had to have a change in the time. The idea of a shot clock was already out there. But how much time should be on it? Leo Ferris did the math. By 1954, he was the general manager of Biazone's team. Looking over box scores from games that had been hard-fought and exciting, he and Biazone counted an average of 120 shots, roughly 60 by each team. It was Leo Ferris who took pen to napkin at the bowling alley bar. The game is 48 minutes long. 48 minutes equals 2,880 seconds. Divide that by 120 and you've got the 24-second shot clock. Leo Ferris, not Danny by his own, presented the clock to the Rules Committee meeting. All of this is documented in old newspaper clippings. Just to give you the importance of this thing, Bill Himmelman, The NBA historian for many years once said there are two moments of importance in basketball history. There's the moment when Dr. Naismith nails a peach basket to the wall, and there's the moment when they turn on the 24-second clock. Leo's role in all of this, the shot clock, the formation of the NBA, and more, was thoroughly reported in the Post Standard and other newspapers of the day. So why, when Beverly Ferris called the sports desk 40 years later, did no one believe her story? He did all this before he was even 39 years old. He left the game at 38 years old. That was just months after the shot clock was introduced. Christian Figueroa says it would take decades before anyone realized the importance of the things Leo Ferris had done. By then he was sick, and by then he was decades out of the game, and by then history had been rewritten, frankly. Leo Ferris died in 1993 after a 25-year battle with Huntington's disease. Beverly Ferris died in 2010 without seeing her husband recognized for his achievements. Leo and Beverly's daughter, Jamie, also inherited Huntington's. Figueroa visited her before her death in 2014. Even as all her muscle functions were deteriorating, she still would talk about him. She would come alive when she got to talk about Leo. When she passed in 2014, It got me thinking about another family member past, another family member who knew Leo, another family member that had fought for Leo. Not every family would have fought so hard. Some might have felt that Leo's post-NBA career in real estate was enough evidence of a life well-lived. But for Beverly and Jamie, recognition was everything. By the time his cousin died, Christian Figueroa had a son of his own, a son who loved basketball. And Figueroa decided it was his turn to pick up the fight to set straight his family's legacy. So this is for Leo, for Aunt Beverly, this is for Cousin Jamie, and for all the people who suffer and have suffered from Huntington's disease. 
And while the Basketball Hall of Fame hasn't recognized Leo Ferris yet, Sean Kirst says it's just a matter of time. How could any fair person hearing our conversation here today, how could you say, you know, that he doesn't belong in there? That this thing is happening, that that a great nephew in Boston embraces the cause of this forgotten upstate basketball pioneer. It's just a joyous story, and I hope it has a joyous culmination. That story first aired in April of 2017. The Naismith Hall of Fame underwent a $23 million renovation this year, and Christian Figueroa hoped the hall might take this opportunity to better recognize his great uncle. Christian first visited the Naismith a few years ago. And immediately when we went to the history of basketball section, my wife spotted Leo in one of the pictures. Then I looked over a couple pictures over and I spotted him again. And I was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. How cool. But Christian's excitement didn't last long because as he looked at the captions for those two photos, he realized Leo's name wasn't listed. Not everybody was listed in the pictures, but there were other members that were listed. So I was like, oh, okay, when I get home, I'm going to reach out to them and say, hey, is there any way you can add his name? Next, Christian checked out the exhibit for the 24-second clock. There was no mention of Leo Ferris. It was very specifically just Danny by his own, full 100% credit. Christian figured that the Hall just didn't know about Leo's contribution, and he didn't expect them to take his word for it. You know, evidence. I needed to submit evidence. So Christian gathered together photos and newspaper clippings and photocopies of contracts, letters, anything he could find that proved his uncle's place in history. All told, he sent the Hall 150 pages of evidence. I did not receive a reply. A couple of months ago, when the hall reopened after that $23 million renovation, Christian immediately went for a visit. He made a beeline to the history of basketball section. But when he got there, he discovered that the two photos of Leo were gone. So I went to the virtual exhibits and I started plugging in names. I started clicking on pictures. And long story short, most, if not all, of the National Basketball League portion of the history was basically taken down. It was very shocking. It was it was very frustrating. Christian kept plugging away, clicking on names in the virtual exhibit. And finally, he found mention of the shot clock in a short blurb about Hall of Famer Dolph Shays. It said, Syracuse owner Danny Biasone and sidekick Leo Ferris push for a shot clock. They didn't use the word executive. They didn't use the word uh, general manager. And, you know, as a family member, regardless of what their intention was, I, I, I couldn't help but feel insulted. My, my antennas were like, wait, is this a jab? Like, is that we've been communicating for five years. In this moment, he was reduced to the word sidekick. Christian Figueroa is careful with his words. He doesn't want to embarrass the Naismith Hall of Fame and hurt his great uncle's chances of being inducted. And who can blame him? By forcing the merger that created the NBA, Leo Ferris embarrassed the powerful men in charge. And in return, they tried to write him out of history. 
I only have the platform that Only a Game has given me for about 20 more seconds, and I'm going to use my time to say this. You might not actually care about who gets inducted into a sports hall of fame, especially with everything that's going on right now. Lots of people don't, and that's okay. But truth matters. History is important. And a 70-year-old grudge shouldn't keep Leo Ferris from getting the recognition he deserves. Well, you know what that music means. The last episode of Only a Game has come to an end. So this is the last time I'm going to tell you that you can keep track of the former Only a Game staff on Twitter. Jonathan Chang is at Jonathan Y. Chang. Martin Kessler is at Martin Kessler 91. Gary Wallach is at Only a Gary. And Marquise Neal is at One Quizzington. I'm Karen Given on Twitter at KL Given. Only a Game will not return next week. On behalf of everyone who worked so hard and had so much fun making this show a success for 27 amazing years, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>